Sherry, do you remember when I used to drink? Of course I remember when you used to drink. You're an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I am. Um, when I used to drink, we used to argue a lot, it turns out. Do you remember that? Do you remember that we argued a lot? I do remember that. You know, I, I think back to the times when we argued and just arguing was just part of who we were as a couple. And first of all, I'm really thankful because we don't argue much anymore. That, that's like a big difference, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Do you like this better or do you like when we argued better? <laughs> well, of course I like this better. <laughs> I'm just testing to see if you listen to me. Yeah, I didn't like Sometimes that. I go on and on and ramble and, you know, I think you kind of check out during my ramblings. So I wanted to see if oh, you, you were f- expecting me just to right off the bat go on a tangent. And, yeah, uh, you figured that out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you like it better when we don't argue. Well, when we did argue, we used to, while I was an active alcoholic, we used to try to figure out the solution to our problems and the solution to our arguments. Yes. I know my, one of my favorites, and I, I think this one's pretty universal. I bet our listeners will, will you know, glom onto this one. We used to say, okay, when we start to discuss things and it's not going well, we're going to take a break from each other. We're going to walk to another room. We're going to give each other a chance to cool down. That came in very late in the game. You wouldn't allow that in the beginning a lot of times. Sorry, I just have a memory of being like, just leave me alone. I want to be left alone. And you would like either call me from the other room because you wanted me to come back to you or you would come in or if I wanted to leave the room that like if we were in our bed and I wanted to leave you're like no don't leave you cannot leave until we figure this out so and if you went somewhere else in the house I would stalk you and hunt yes. you down yeah yeah but then when when we even when we mutually agreed like when cooler heads were prevailing and we would discuss our arguments and we would say well we've, we've just got to We've just got to take a break. We got to, you know, you go in the other room or I'll go in the other room. We just got to give each other a few moments to calm down because that will help us to talk rationally about whatever it is we're discussing. Even when we set that as a strategy, we sucked at it and and it went both ways. Yeah, well, you you would calm down or you would say you calmed down and you would pretend and act to be calmed down a lot more than a lot quicker than I would. To, for me to calm down and talk about it rationally would mean about 24 to 48 hours. Days. Oh, hours. Oh. Yes, hours. But no, but but even if even if we said, okay, let's take a minute, you know, one of we would walk away from each other and then two minutes later, one of us would be back. Well, I got one more thing to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, even when we knew that the strategy was solid, we neither of us could execute it very well. Yeah. And yes, it did take you a little while to calm down oh you know what was really helpful when you were trying to calm down was if i would say why don't you calm down or just take some deep breaths yeah Yeah. one person telling another person to calm down or how to calm down that's always super helpful yeah and i always found your tone when you were pretending to be calm to be very condescending because you would just like have this arrogance in your voice 
when you were pretending to be calm and rational. So then you came across like, oh, look, I'm calm and rational because I'm speaking like this. Why can't you calm down? You know? And yeah. So just like you could irritating. just, by looking at me, you could tell if I had been drinking, you could also tell if I was like suppressing anger yes. with, with pretended calmness. Yeah. That vein in your head would pop out, which I don't see the vein anymore. It's like gone away. Like well, you used to have a I vein. I don't think that... that's necessarily good. I well, think we need I... our veins. <laughs> <laughs> I know you need your veins, but it was like your angry vein. Oh. Or upset vein. Well, that could relax then. That'd be good. Relaxing the angry vein. One thing that we did try when we were bickering all the time that actually had some short-term success, had had no chance for long-term success, but you've even, you know, you talk about it, the fact that this was mildly successful for a while, is we would, we said to each other, let's just be nice to each other all the time. Let's, like, be consciously nice to each other. Do you remember that being the strategy? I do. I do remember that one, yeah. What What did that feel like for you? How do, I mean, how do you... How do you take someone that you've got disdain for and anger at and something happens and you just, was it just like pushing it down? Was that kind of the strategy? I think that was, I mean, ultimately that really was a little bit of the strategy and then also was just not, I wouldn't say not pushing it down, but really having to evaluate what you said and how you said it and it coming out. Of course, I stunk at that one. Well, you know, it's it's the only thing that we tried that, like I, like we said, had some short-term success. Yeah. Just both of us, no matter what we were going to say, stopping and intentionally thinking about how the words were going to come out of our mouths. It worked a little while. You know, in the long run, it probably, it was probably a bad thing because it worked just well enough that we thought maybe that was the long-term solution. And if we could just master it. It would be great. So no matter how we felt about each other, no matter what was welling up inside, if we just suppressed all that and talked nicely to each other, we could get along for the rest of our relationship. Well, I think that if you had a normal situation and you had not had all the resentments and the buildup and the anguish and the alcoholic brain and all of that playing into right. it, it would, it would work because I think you do have to... Like, think about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it and conduct yourself when you're, you know, even if you're upset. I mean, you have to have, be constructive and But if you don't have the resentment and the anger and the frustration and the distrust and all the built yeah. up stuff, aren't you just naturally going to be nice to each other because you like each other? Isn't yeah. that the goal? Yeah. But I mean, even in that situation, there are going to be times where there's a conflict and you have to... What I'm saying is... Yeah. You're right. I mean, permanent sobriety is not uh, conflict-free. Right. But it's severely conflict-diminished, that's for sure. Another one that I remember that I tried to um, instill in our relationship about that was um, like a five-minute not um, interrupting each other. And, And you were like, that's so stupid. I never interrupt you. Yeah. So so one person was talking. So one person was talking and you had five minutes and you'd like set like a timer. Not That's a long time though, you gotta admit. Or maybe it was three months. I don't remember, but it was like a certain amount of time that a person would have to talk. But I don't know why you think that five minutes is a long time to just talk. (laughs) 
I don't. I think it's a long time to listen. I don't okay. think it's a long time to talk at all. But you know, when you're when you're trying to when you're in argument mode and you're trying to prepare your counter arguments, and then someone's going to go for five minutes, that's a lot to keep track of. You need to have a notebook and a pen if you're going to keep track okay. of all. Well, that. maybe it wasn't five minutes, but that's kind of scary to can you know construct your counter arguments. That's pretty. Yeah. It sucks, yeah. I'm not bragging about it. It was not a highlight of my life. Well, I think we can, you know, we can agree that alcoholism is that is a disease of stubbornness in a lot of ways. And I think that's what, you know, was a factor in the, in the arguments. I mean, alcohol was the cause of the arguments ultimately. Because here now I don't drink and we've worked a lot on our relationship and we've each worked a lot on ourselves. And we just don't argue like that anymore, which this is a really terrible conversation to have. I'm sure we're going to have a knockdown drag out fight sometime this afternoon or this evening (laughs) after bragging about how we don't argue anymore. But hopefully not. Alcoholism is alcoholism is really insidious because of the way it creeps into a relationship. You know, it's not like it's not the kind of disease where one day you get tested for it and you don't have it. And then the next day you get tested for it and you do have it. It's not like, you know, coronavirus or cancer or any of these things where by testing your blood or some other part of your bodily fluid, we can tell yes or no, whether you have it. So it just slowly, slowly, slowly invades your life over a long period of time. And it's so slow and insidious that you don't even really notice that it's happening. And I don't think there's any anywhere in an alcoholic's life or an alcoholic marriage where that is as true as how hard it becomes to get along for the alcoholic couple. Because it like I said it creeps in slowly over time. It's not, you know, if you if all of a sudden if you go from not drinking in the morning to all of a sudden you're drinking in the morning, that's a red flag and it's you know, even if you ignore it, which most alcoholics do, you know, it's kinda undeniable. It's it's there for you to look at. <clears throat> Whereas if you just s- start disagreeing with your partner more and more Slowly, 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 it it can creep in until it's debilitating and it's crushing the marriage and you didn't even realize that it was happening. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So you that's how you remember it too? Like we went from... Well, we always kind of bickered and argued from the beginning. So I think that if you weren't a couple that bickered and argued from the beginning and it slowly crept in, you might just also associate that with just... You know, hormonal changes in your body as you're getting older or growth or lack of growth that you might, you know, find as a couple or growing apart or different interests or so you might blame other outside influences or internal influence, but not really blame the alcohol. Well, we always bickered from the beginning, but from the beginning, we were both drinking heavily. Mm -hmm. Do you not do you think it got worse as time went on? Our arguments? Yeah, I mean, I su- yeah, I suppose that they, maybe they didn't get like. I think it was just more, more often. Yeah, and just the general like, Bleh, he's in the room. Yuck. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, when you start looking for the reasons for the arguments, that's where it gets kind of tricky because when, when you're grasping for the cause of your relationship problems, I, I, you know, I know I as the alcoholic, because I wasn't even willing to look at alcohol as a potential cause for the problems, I would look at you as the potential cause for problems. So what is it about Sherry that's causing us to fight? Because it can't be me. You know, is it the fact that she's just kind of nasty and mean? Um, has she turned on me? Is she not the same person she used to be? And really, honestly, between the two of us, you were the one that changed the most, right? Because you matured. We got out of college, and especially once we had our daughter, our first child, you saw it as time to grow up and stop you know, acting like a young 20-something that doesn't have any responsibilities. And I continued to act like a young 20-something that didn't have any responsibilities, even though I had lots of responsibilities. Yeah. So I think, I think this is really important. I think this is a common thing in alcoholic relationships. There were changes taking place. And the changes were taking place to the, the partner that was not alcoholic. But the changes were good. And I still viewed them as, well, maybe that's the, the reason that the relationship is a mess. Maybe that's the reason we argue. I mean, I said to you lots of times, especially on the weekends, you know, why don't you drink with me? Let's, let's go out on the porch and drink and talk and we won't watch TV or watch a movie. We'll just kind of hang out and basically get drunk. And you didn't have a lot of interest in that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Were you just turned off from alcohol at that point or turned off from me? Um, probably a little of everything. Like, um, because like I knew that one of us had to, like, especially when we had kids and they were little, like one of us had to be responsible. And, um, I know that I didn't bounce back as well from a night of drinking. And I had other things that I could do than just sit around and drink on the, you know, the back deck with you. And, and maybe even I didn't want to hear what you had to say, you know, cause maybe I thought, oh, it would just be all about you. And I didn't know what kind of meaningful conversation we would have. And then as we aged, talking to you always turned into... We've got to solve these problems. What's your problem? You're so angry. So avoiding you and having and avoid having a conversation with you was best. Because I didn't want to listen to what you had to say. I think you hit two important points there. You know, one, you basically said, and I agree, that I was selfish. That's a universal trait of alcoholics it it is a very self-centered disease and we can only think about ourselves, our own problems our own issues and so if I wanted to talk you're right I was probably going to be talking about me and then if I wanted to talk about the problems I would that's the only time I'd be talking about you I'd be talking about what you needed to do to fix yourself so that the problems didn't exist anymore it's gonna be a horrible horrible place to be but you know, again, as the alcoholic, I think the last place you're going to look as the source of the difficulty is the alcohol. you got to find it somewhere else and nothing else makes sense. So it's got to be this 
nasty person that I'm married to. The other thing that happens or happened to us and happens in many of the relationships with people that we we talk to and we, we help and we listen to and we work with is a lack of sex drive sets in. And, you know, a lot of it, it sets in after the woman has had, had children. And, you know, so I think there's a hormonal component to that. That's, you can't, you can't argue against that there, you know, the woman's purpose for sex is to procreate. And once she's done that, there is a switch that flips and it changes the sex drive of a female hormonally. But there's another piece of it that I think is also impossible to argue. <coughs> and that's when you're married to an alcoholic who, you know, is doing things like what we just talked about. You're arguing a lot and the alcoholic is blaming you for being nasty and mean and not realizing, see the nasty and the mean, that's not who you were, Sherry. That was that wasn't the cause of our problems. That was the result of the problems. Yeah, it was a product. So, so if you were nasty and mean, it was because of the hellish situation you were living through. It was part of your defense mechanism. But so you know, you've got someone. You had me in our case who who was blaming stuff on you and arguing with you and couldn't get along with you, and then on top of that would drink and get sloppy and be moody and one minute laughing and one minute crying and and just doing very opinionated very opinionated very arrogant i think you used that word earlier and it's absolutely right so you're dealing with all of that your hormones are telling your body yeah we we did that we're done we don't need to do the sex thing anymore so you've got all this stuff piling up and you know then i want to have sex and you're like you're just not attracted to me. So you got the hormonal component, but you've also got all these behavioral characteristics that take your husband, the person that you love or loved anyway, and at one time you were attracted to, and now you're like, you know, there's just too much negative stuff that I find unattracted, unattractive for me to, you know, have any interest in bed with you. Does that make sense? Does that sound like I'm representing the situation properly? Yeah. Um, you know, I, don't I think know. When, when people talk about being attracted, they always think about like the looks. What's the person's face look like? The physical just and, and maybe that's because men are shallow and that is a huge factor to men. I'm not sure. But when you when we talk about whether you were or were not attracted to me when I was in active alcoholism, it's not about that, is it? Maybe maybe that's a component, but isn't it much deeper, the things that were unattractive? Yeah, um, I was just thinking, like, you know, like, to be a- attractive to me, you know, um, would probably not be... You probably were still very selfish in thinking that you want to have sex the way, in your mind, you want to have sex and not listening to what I would want to do or what I would like or, um, you know, I feel like when I said opinionated, 
I don't necessarily think that that just stopped when you were, you know, rambling about something political after you watched on news. It like I think you were very kind of set in your ways of what you your opinion was. This is how like great sex should be, and I don't feel like you were much. You weren't a good listener with that, and then you know the one or two times I did talk about it and then I was rejected I just stopped sharing like you suggested we do something specific and you were yeah and then you're like oh I don't know or that doesn't feel right you know that doesn't feel good to me or whatever so I just took that rejection and then I just never spoke up yeah yeah but is it fair to say that I mean that that's what's happening actually in the bedroom when we're when we're trying and when we're being yeah. intimate, but, but there was... There was nothing beforehand that made you seem attractive to me. Yeah. You know, waking you up from wherever you, you know, fell asleep. Passed out. Yeah. You know, waking you up and then being like, oh, crap. Now he's going to want to have sex. Then, like, you've been, you know, drunk and incoherent for the last couple hours of the evening or, you know, passed out, so... What's it like from this attractiveness topic from... What's it like to see, you know, let's say it's a Saturday and the whole family's home and we're all doing our stuff. You're doing work around the house. I'm doing work around the house and I'm, you know, coherent and uh, level-headed and all of that stuff. And then I start drinking and you slowly get to watch the transition because you're there with me during the day. What does that feel like? Hmm. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it before. It was just so much a part of our routine. I guess worrisome. Like, I don't know what he's going to turn into. Um, feeling very, you know, I've had a lot of anxiety, like wondering what you were going to turn into or what one of us was going to say that made you feel uncomfortable and you had to share your opinion or... Um, like you would be, you know, like if we had, you know, cleaned the house or worked outside and like you'd get bossy about like something being out of place. So as I would drink, did you feel more and more like you were walking on eggshells? Is oh, that, yeah. Is that a way to describe it? Yep. Because you never knew what I was going to do. Right. I never knew what you were going to do or what you were going to say or what was going to set you off or how you were going to behave. I mean, you weren't like abusive to the kids or anything, but I just knew that like they could have said something or did something or didn't, didn't, you know, get their teeth brushed in time, like for going to bed and. So you would be walking on eggshells, you know, another way to say that is that you would have your guard up, which is, you know, it's unavoidable and necessary if you're the loved one of an alcoholic, especially not, not just when they're drinking, but especially when they're drinking, because the, the brain of an alcoholic is warped even in, even when they're sober, even when we're sober. So I'm not, that can be fixed. I'm saying in long-term sobriety, it can be fixed, but you know, if you drink Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, you, you don't drink. You're not. You're not right. Your your brain is still messed up. So you, as the spouse, 
have to keep your guard up all the time. And part of keeping your guard up is you've got kind of a hair trigger for regular disagreements. So if even if I'm not drinking, when I'm in active alcoholism and you know something something sparks, something small sparks. There's a little disagreement. There's something stressful. There's some financial matter or, you know, one of the kids does something wrong. It could set us, you know, into a really bad argument. And often that was because your reaction was a little bit over the top because you were so afraid of what my reaction was going to be. So you would... Again, I use the word hair trigger. You would be ready to kind of pounce at any moment to defend yourself or defend the kids or or whatever because you were so afraid of these mood swings and where I was going to go. You were constantly like ready to turn me into the enemy. And so a lot of times the arguments that we had on, on days when I wasn't drinking would very much from the outside look like they were your fault because... You just kind of leapt at me when talking would have been better. But but here's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to lay any of the blame on you. What I'm trying to say is, again, if you were nasty, if you were mean, that's not because that's who you were. That's because that's what alcoholism turned you into. That's what alcoholism created. So your need to keep your defense mechanism in place and ready to protect you and the kids is what caused angry outbursts on your side. But first of all, do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think when you live in like a high anxiety, you know, environment, you're on edge. And also, you know, I, I didn't realize like how quickly I would react or overreact to something. When you say you because didn't it realize. Was like, because it was like skewed in my mind. Is that something you realize now, now that you don't do that? When you say it, you didn't realize, is, does yeah, hindsight... I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I overreact. Like whenever you would scold the kids and even if it was a normal situation, you know, like they had bit their brother or smacked or, you know, just did something that was, you know... Punishment worthy. Yeah. I would be worried that you were going to go over the top. Sure. So I would be ready there to interject myself and stop like a normal, you know, punishment or scolding. Yeah. Yeah, so... So, yeah, I would... So now that your attitude toward me, your posturing toward me, you're not on eggshells and you're not constantly ready for me to go overboard or do something unpredictable. Wait, I'm rolling your, my eyes, people, because I wouldn't say that you are doing that in a drunken state, but you are pretty... Um, like, you do things like you're a little... Um, you still do things that, like, surprise me or, like, not in a bad way or doing something that's, like, out of the box. But do you feel like you're constantly on eggshells but, pre- preparing for 
me to do something unexpected or bad? Um, not bad. Sometimes still unexpected, but not on eggshells as much. So these podcasts sometimes put me on eggshells because I wonder how much we're going to talk about sex. And that makes me uncomfortable. Well, according to my list right here in front of me, we're done with sex good. for this one. Unless you want to go back and no, revisit. No, good with that. Okay. So now that you can look back on how it used to be without, you know, in, in a situation where you're much more calm to react... Can can you see how much different your behavior used to be? Um, yeah, because I lived in a defensive state. Exactly. Exactly. So the the point is, when you are the active alcoholic and you're analyzing this real time, it, on a day when you're not drinking, in a moment when you're not drinking, it is really easy to say, look at how my wife flies <clears throat> off the handle. Look at how she jumps and lurches at me at the mildest thing that I have to say. <laughs> Look how nasty and mean my wife is. Yeah. And it's really easy to say, okay, maybe I drink too much, but she's got to own a big piece of this. Yeah. Because you... a big piece of this is her fault. Well, because then you would also, you know, lay on top of it. Like if it was a rough weekend, there would be that blanket apology where I'm supposed to just accept your... I'm sorry for, you know, acting that way this weekend or whatever and act like it's fine and go on. And there would still be all the resentments and you, the alcoholic, most of the time, like, forgot even what was going on. So. Well, forgot what was going on and then the traumatic parts that I remembered, part of the compartmentalization, part of the ability to move on and keep drinking is you've got to take, you've got to take that bad weekend and apologize like you said the blanket apology and then box that thing up and dig a hole in the backyard and bury it and put it away and then say that's not going to happen again the next time I'll do better because if you hold on to that resentment then you ha- then you have to stare in the eye the fact that this isn't going well and <clears throat> the alcohol isn't a good fit for my life mm-hmm. so what comes across to you as you know I've just ignored it and moved on is is my defense mechanism was my defense mechanism I've got to move on or I've got to stop drinking those are the only two options yeah if I linger in the pain of the last episode then clearly alcohol has got to go and and until I was ready to accept that I was 100% ready to never accept that that was like some double negatives I hope that made sense yeah yeah but yeah. it I get what you're saying Okay, good. So, you know, blame and stubbornness are a couple of really solid traits of an alcoholism or of an alcoholic. Uh, you know, let's let's dissect a situation and figure out what part of the blame lies with you, and what part of the blame lies with me. The only thing that I was never willing to blame even in early sobriety, really, was the alcohol. Even when I admitted that I was an alcoholic and decided I needed to stop drinking, you know, those early days, I carried tons of shame and blame around with me. This is my fault. You know, it's like, it's like you're climbing a mountain 
of alcoholism and like it's getting worse and worse and the higher you get the less you can breathe and it's just harder and harder and then you get to this top of this mountain and you look over the other side and you realize the side I've been climbing up was my drinking days the other side is my sobriety days and the the whole world has shifted instead of instead of saying that this must all be because my wife's nasty and it's all her fault and my alcohol really doesn't have anything to do with it you suddenly see the other side of the mountain. You say, no, I'm an alcoholic and my alcoholism is a huge factor in this. And on this other side of the mountain, you know, I'm to blame. I'm full of shame. I'm a miserable human being. I, I had several conversations just this week with people that were in early recovery. And, you know, one of the comments was, I didn't realize what a horrible human being I am. And I had to say to that gentleman, you're, you're not. It, it's the alcohol. If He said, you know, I used to be a nice guy. I used to be considerate and loving and thoughtful. I don't know what happened to me. This is someone who's seeking help for alcoholism and, and recognizing that alcohol doesn't have a role in their life anymore. And, and they're still saying, I don't know what happened to me. That, that that's a really important point. The alcohol is what happened to that person. The alcohol is what happened to me. But we don't see it that way. We see it as like we're a little bit demonic or broken or warped. There's something wrong with us. And that's what causes our alcoholic behavior as opposed to recognizing that it's the alcohol that causes the alcoholic behavior. And so when... Alcoholics are in that early early period of sobriety. Certainly this was the case for me. I took a lot of the blame. But I also wanted to talk about what part of the blame was your fault. Do you remember that, Sherry? Um, I do. I guess this whole time that you've talked about how you didn't want to blame alcohol, I'm confused because I feel like when we hit in the past, before you hit... Um, this sobriety, this permanent sobriety, like you would say, if I quit drinking, all of our problems will go away. So I feel like you blame the alcohol, but then also there's other work to be done. I mean, there were glimpses. There were moments where I said that, but there were also the majority of the time I said, oh, if I only drink on Friday, Saturday and Sunday, uh, that that's my exerting control over alcohol. If I only drink two beers on weeknights, if I stay away from hard alcohol, I had all kinds of solutions. I just feel like, you know, we were kind of naive thinking that when you quit drinking that all of the problems would go away because of, and, and I guess what you're saying is that there were these problems that were left well, by alcohol that had done the damage that had caused the dysfunction. I definitely believed that if I stopped drinking, the problems would go away. You're 100% right there. But it was more like, okay, there's this fire going on, and if I stop pouring gasoline on it, the fire will go out. It had That had nothing to do with where the blame would lie. I still felt full of shame and full of responsibility for the many arguments we had, the nights where we didn't sleep, we stayed up all night bickering and fighting. Yes, I knew that the alcohol was like a trigger for me to cause me to go into this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Mr. Hyde mode, but that didn't that didn't change the fact that um, even though the alcohol was the trigger, I still blamed myself, and 
I blamed you also. I blamed you for your part. I blamed you for your nastiness. I blamed you for your short temper. We, we've talked so many times about how early on when we were dating, I was really attracted to how spunky you were and, and how you didn't take crap from anybody else. And you were, you know, you were a spitfire. And then later on in our relationship, I would blame you for that and say, you know, that's part of our problem. That's why we can't get along because you're short fuse and you're short temper. I didn't understand the fact that you had to keep your defense mechanisms up and that that short fuse was there to protect yourself and the kids. So, yes, I did believe that if alcohol left the relationship, everything would be fine. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't still carry tons of blame around, uh, blaming me, myself, for my alcoholism, Mm -hmm. for having contracted the disease of alcoholism and having, you know, being weak morally and... And just, you know, just being a bad person. And I had left plenty of room to blame you for your short temper. But, you know, that's not, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. And we knew it now looking back. Your short temper was a result of the alcohol. My shame that I felt was a result of the alcohol. The alcohol, it's the thing that needs to be blamed. You know, the alcohol's gone and it's been gone for a long time now. And we've done work on ourselves and work on the relationship. And things are so different. And it's easy to look back on it now and see that the alcohol changed who I was as a person. But the alcohol also changed who you were as a person. The alcohol is what made you you turn kind of nasty or nasty at times at least. But so many people that we talk to and we work with, they they just can't see that. And they they want to, you know, it's it's like it's like they can't work into their recovery until they've assigned accurately the blame for each percentage of the problems in the relationship. Yeah, I drank too much, but you did this. I drank too much, but you were hard to get along with. I drank too much, but you weren't interested in sex anymore. There you go, Sherry. We're talking about sex again. How about just affection? Affection. Okay. I didn't I didn't love on you enough. I didn't show you enough affection. I remember that was something that, you know, you felt like you needed more of. But how could I be affectionate and loving on you when I just really wanted to, like, punch you in the face most of the time? Yeah. Yeah, that... That's that makes uh, you finding anything to be attracted to pretty difficult when most of the time you just want to punch me. <laughs> but that's it's just such a it's such a common thing that we run into. You know, people think they think yeah, this alcoholism was a piece of it, but really, there's much more to it. And there's much more to recovery. There's much more to healing. You've got to work through the resentments. You've got to find a way to build trust again. If you have children, you've got to deal with the impact that you've had on the children. And then hopefully, if you get through all of that, you can start to work on rebuilding the intimacy in the relationship. So there is a cycle. There's a lot of work to be done in recovering an alcoholic marriage after the alcohol is gone. But assigning the blame shouldn't be as much work as people make it. It it's it's not it's not a little bit you and a little bit me 
It's the alcohol. That's what the message is for today. I've just had a lot of conversations in this last week with a lot of people who are trying to trying to figure out what part of the issue is the responsibility of the nasty wife versus just the alcohol. The nasty wife is the result of the alcohol. The nasty wife isn't the isn't the cause. I think we've met enough people and had our own experiences to feel pretty solid in that. How do you feel about it? Looking back now, like do you think do you think it was you know a character flaw on my part that caused our problems? Or do you think it was the alcohol? Yeah, I I definitely think it was the alcohol. I mean it started, you know, warping your brain you know in your late teen years and so it changed who you were supposed to be it changed your thought process it changed your outlook and your perspective and so yeah I think that I think that alcohol is to blame for a lot of it and I don't think that people understand like the the real effects that it happens, like, you know, for other people and how we become defensive or closed off or uninterested or, you know, or worried if you're, like, a parent, you know, and overprotective of, of the situation, like. It just worries me when we meet people and they say things like, like, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm married to an alcoholic, but I'm not the easiest person to live with either. So I know I've got to own some of that. It just worries me because, and and I, I feel like we're beating the drum pretty hard on this one topic over and over on this episode. But it doesn't. It seems like it doesn't matter how many we how many times we we say and we tell people it's it's the alcohol. It's not you. They still want to own some of that. I think that's just human nature to try to. To try to figure out what's my role in this mess that I'm in. I've, yeah, I've I got to be partially to blame. I definitely feel like I would. I had said to you, oh, when we were arguing, or if I wasn't being nice, that you know, I probably pushed you to drink more than what you would have if, like, if like after dinner and it looked like it was going to be an easy night, and I don't know, something happened, and I kind of lipped off what I would say, lipped off, or I was glib about my reaction. And then you would be like, oh, well, now I'm going to drink some more. You know, I'd be mm-hmm. like, well, that's my fault. But really, that was just a way for you to have an excuse. Yeah, I was always looking for something to... But also, I feel like when people say, like, you know, what's my part in it? What do I have to do with it? Or I'm not the easiest person to get along with. Yeah, but you still deserve, you know, value and love. And and you're probably pretty easy to get along with when it's a rational situation. You know, and, and and you're not hard to get along with, and that caused the alcoholism. You're hard to get along with because of yeah. the alcoholism. Like even if people don't agree, I think if they take like the anger part out of a relationship or out of the situation, and there was like a a level of respect that was there and good foundation. Even if you don't agree with somebody, you can work through it and be tolerable, and you don't have to say they're disagreeable and hard to get along with. 
I know I bet you felt like that with me a lot of the times. Felt like you were disagreeable and hard to get along with? Yeah. When I was drinking, I did. But yeah. listen, last night we had a, a discussion and you shared, I think, three really, really vulnerable things with me about the way you were feeling. And these were the kinds of things that when I was drinking, you would not have shared. You would have kept that stuff down inside. You would have been worried about my reaction. You would have thought that, you know, one of the things that I used to do is try to fix all your problems because I didn't want to, you know, I I didn't want anything to linger. I just wanted, if you told me something was wrong, oh, here's what you do and then you'll be fine. Yeah. But now like you're, you're to the point where you'll trust me just to listen and say, oh, I'm sorry, that sucks and not not try to fix it or not try to tell you what you're doing wrong or not try to blame you for it, which is the way it used to be. Mm. And I used to think in my head, you're overly opinionated and pretty confident with your, you know, information that you're putting out there that everybody wants to do it the way you would do it. Like that's how I would look at it. So yeah, I wouldn't want to talk to you about things. But to think that we've gone, we've gotten to that point from, you know, the point where we couldn't get along about, you know, anything, what, what we were going to do for the weekend or how we, how we took care of the garden together in the fall or whatever. I don't know why I thought of that example, but we, Maybe we could argue fall and the garden needs to be taken care of. <laughs> we could argue over anything. Put the garden to bed. And now like you're able to come to me in this vulnerable state and share stuff with me that it, you know, I don't have a solution for. I don't know. I, all I can do is listen. And that's, that's you know, that's my job, right? That's, yeah, and I, and even though you did say, well, have you thought of these things about some of your, you know, you weren't trying to, like, give me the answer and I have to do it your way because, you know, then if it didn't. But I do feel like then I was more responsive to your opinion or thought. So you've gone from when I was drinking to a really nasty, judgmental, uh, jump-at-me kind of person to this person that's willing to open up and be vulnerable and and honest and truthful. That's a massive transition. And the reason it was possible is because the alcohol has gone. So it's easy for us now to look back and blame the alcohol because we're different people without it. But I think if people in early sobriety or that haven't crossed over into sobriety yet, they can't see that. They want to assign the blame. Part of it's mine, part of it's yours. And we're here to tell you, none of it's yours. And it can get much, much, much better. But both parties have to acknowledge it. It's not enough for the loved one of the alcoholic to know this truth if the alcoholic doesn't absorb it and agree to it as well. This stuff's complicated. It's not easy. It's taken us a long time to get from where we were to where we are. But I'm glad we're working on it. Aren't you, Sherry? Yep. All right. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I am Matt Salis. We'll see you next time.